has been talking, going in the direction that we're going to go today, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been driving somewhere, or maybe you saw this sign somewhere that says, if you are reading this, thank a teacher. All right. <laughs> Apparently you haven't. <laughs> and then I saw one time on a VFW, very appropriately, if you are reading this, thank a teacher. And if you are reading this in English, thank a veteran. Well, if we were going to edit that statement one more time, and we were saying, if you are reading the Bible in English, I think we could say that we should thank this man right here. Now, does this face ring a bell for you? Probably not. I was wondering if he's sucking on a Sour Patch Kid. (laughs) Apparently, 500 years ago, people, when they had their pictures painted, they didn't want to look too happy. But this man in this picture, his name is William Tyndale. And chances are you've never heard of William Tyndale, but he has had more influence on the Bible that you're reading in your hands today than any human being in history. William Tyndale was a minister in the early 1500s, and he was working as a tutor and as a chaplain for this wealthy English family when one night a priest came to visit. And Tyndale and this priest get into a spirited theological discussion, and Tyndale was shocked to learn how little this priest actually knew about Scripture. And when he pointed out, the priest responded to him, well, it would be better not to have God's law than not to have the Pope's law. In other words, he was saying, what do we need Scripture for? We have the Pope to tell us what to do. Well, this didn't set right with William Tyndale, and his famous response was that if God spares my life, I will cause that the boy that drives the plow will know more of Scripture than you do. And in that conversation, in that period of his life, God ignited a passion in William Tyndale that every English-speaking person be able to have God's words in Scripture in their hands to read. But there was a problem. It was the early 1500s, and there were no English Bibles. And more than that, having an English Bible was actually illegal. As in, like, they will put you to death if you have one. Illegal. So Tyndale went to his bishop and said, hey, I'd like to translate the New Testament into English. And the bishop said, no. And so Tyndale ran off to Germany where he began to pursue God's call in his life to translate God's word into English. He finished his Greek translation into the New Testament in English in 1525, and he began to smuggle those Bibles back into England through wineskins from Germany or wine barrels. He got enough money to print 6,000 copies. And when the bishops in England found out what he was doing, they began to buy up those copies so that they could burn them. Well, Tyndale and his associates found out. So what they did was they just jacked up the prices on those Bibles. They sold them to the bishops. The bishops paid an exorbitant amount of money. They made massive profits and in turn wound up being able to print way more Bibles than they thought they would be able to. (laughs) This went on for 10 years. Until in 1535, when someone pretending to be Tyndale's friend betrayed him, he was arrested. He was accused of heresy. And in October 1536, they took this man to the public square. They tied him to a post. They put brush around his feet and gunpowder in the brush. And they gave him one last chance to recant. One last time, they gave him the opportunity to promise to never distribute English Bibles again. And Tyndale cried out, Lord, May you open the eyes of the king of England. In other words, may you help the king of England to see what you are doing through your word. A local official gave the signal. Tyndale was mercifully strangled, and then his body was set ablaze. 
His physical life ended that day, but his story wasn't over. Within three years, the king of England actually ordered that scripture be translated into English, and more than that, that every parish in England have a copy available for its parishioners to read. And do you want to guess whose translation was used for this parishes? See, if you, if you go back over history, you'll see that history is literally filled with stories like that of William Tyndale. Stories of people who have devoted their lives and even sacrificed their lives so that this book could be accessible for people to read. And it raises the question when we hear stories like this, what is so special about this book that people would do so much just so that we could read it? And that's our question today as we continue and follow. The question we have today is this, what is this book? What is the Bible? Now, as we get ready to go, there's two things I want to mention. First, in your bulletin, you might find some sermon notes. I want you to go ahead and pull those out. There's some places where you can fill in some of the blanks and also some space in the sides where you can take extra notes if God speaks something extra to your heart that you want to capture. And also, I realize this. We, we have a large audience today, an even lar- larger, larger audience for those who are watching online. So I realize there are many different perceptions of what this book is. In fact, there's some here today that you're kind of skeptical. You're thinking, well, I don't even know if I believe this book is true. In fact, you're probably going to listen to this message today, and you'd like to shoot some holes in what I say, because not only do you not know if the book is true, but if it isn't true, well, that would get you off the hook for doing some of the things it says to do in your life. And there's others here today who, when you say, what is the Bible, you say, well, I'm really new to this. I, I want to learn more, but you just don't know. And so you're saying, teach me, teach me. But others, others are kind of what I would call Bible hoarders. You know how some people like go to McDonald's and when they used to have the ketchup packets, they would just take handfuls and stick them in the refrigerator. Not that you ever used it, but you just had plenty of them in the refrigerator. And I see some husbands giving some wives some looks like that was you. Sometimes we do that with the Bible, don't we? We just kind of stuff all the Bible things we learn in the refrigerator of our lives, but we don't actually use it. And I also realize there are people here today, you've been studying God's Word longer than I've been alive. And the reality is, I'm not the person in the room that knows the most about the Bible. I'm just the person in the room that has the opportunity to teach this morning. So we have people from all different ranges when it comes to what this book is in your life. And we have a limited amount of time. So let me tell you what we're going to do today. We're not going to be able to answer every question uh, about the Bible. We're going to narrow it down to just one specific way of looking at it. But you're probably going to have questions, and not every question is going to be answered. So on the back of these notes that you just took out, I want to let you know I put a bunch of great resources. So if you want to learn more about how we got the Bible, how to read the Bible, and various things about the Bible, there's some great resources on the back. And our library is actually going to pick up some of these. They may already have them in for this Sunday, at least some of them. You can look some more on your own. But since we're in this series called Follow, and since Jesus is the one that we follow, today we're going to look at the question of what was Jesus' take on the Bible? How would Jesus answer this question, what is the Bible? And when you look at Jesus and his perspective of Scripture, regardless of what you believe about Scripture, what you have to admit is that Jesus believed the Bible. And more than that, he used the Bible all of the time. 
One resource said that there were over 70 times in Jesus' recorded ministry where he referred to the portion of the Bible that we know as the Old Testament. And if you think, you probably can remember some stories when Jesus used the Bible. If you remember early on in his ministry, he is going out into a desert, into a wilderness, and Satan comes and tempts him three times. Do you remember each time what Jesus did to deal with those temptations? Well, he quoted Scripture. Maybe the one you remember the most is when he quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And, and he says to Satan himself, he says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but man should live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, man needs to live on Scripture. Food's not enough. If you're going to survive life, you need to have Scripture in your life. Jesus, at the end of his ministry, on the cross, the last recorded words that he says was a quote of Psalm 31 when he says, Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. Jesus used scripture all throughout his ministry, but most of Jesus's view on scripture or his take on scripture is implied through how he used it. Only on a couple occasions did Jesus actually come out and say, this is what scripture is, and on the occasion that we're going to look at today in our time together in the Word is one of those occasions. So I want to invite you, if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to John chapter 5. We're going to go to John chapter 5 today, and as you're making your way there, let me tell you a little bit about what's going on. Kind of early in Jesus' ministry, as far as we can tell, Jesus heads to the big city of Jerusalem. There's a holiday going on, and as Jesus is getting into town, he has to go through one of the gates into the town, and at this particular gate, there's a pool of water. And this pool of water had a legend surrounding it. See, superstition said that every once in a while, an angel would come down and stir the water of this pool, and the first person who got into the water would be healed of any disease that they had. And so you would see people with various infirmities and, and handicaps hanging out around the pool, just waiting for the angel to come and stir the water. And John tells us that there was one particular guy hanging out there that day who had been crippled, for 38 years. And Jesus noticed him. And Jesus says to him in John chapter 5, verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked them, asked him, do you want to get well? Now, this is a little bit outside of the scope of this sermon, but I just can't pass this up without pointing this out. When Jesus learned that he had been in this condition, this is so, this is so convicting for me because it just teaches about Jesus' heart. Because what we see here is that before Jesus' ministry was transformational, it, it was relational. He stopped to learn about this guy who was just a nobody. Before he fixed him, he found out about him. Before he healed him, he heard what he had to say. And even as we celebrate things like Serve Day and 100 people from our church going out into our community making an impact, I think Jesus' is, Jesus is heart here has to inform our ministry because, folks, we're, we're not called to solve problems as much as we're just called to serve people. And our ministry can't be problem-focused. Our ministry has to be people-focused because Jesus took the time to find out about this guy before I even ask them the question of, do you want to get well? And I also want to just say, there, there might be somebody here today who you just feel like a nobody. You feel like nobody knows you, nobody cares. I just want you to know, Jesus, Jesus sees you. He knows you. In Jesus' eyes, nobody is a nobody. And he cares. 
Continuing on in the story, even if you've never heard this particular one before, you've probably heard enough good stories in your life to know where this is headed. Of course, Jesus being who he is, he heals the man. In fact, this is how Jesus puts it. In verse 8, he says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And sure enough, that's exactly what this man who's been crippled for 38 years did. He gets up, takes his mat, and walks. It's pretty impressive, but if we continue on, we'll find out not everyone was impressed. In fact, there were some religious leaders there that day, and they realized that the day was the Sabbath. And they said on the, on the day in which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders, the religious guys, said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. Come on. Don't you know? The law forbids you to carry your mat. This, this is humorous to me, right? So this guy who hasn't walked for 38 years gets healed. And the religious guys, the only thing they care about is now he is technically breaking a law. I mean, I thought about this. The modern day version of this story would be a man who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years drives to Giant Eagle. He parks his handicapped vehicle in the handicapped spot with his handicapped sign hanging there. He gets out his wheelchair. He wheels himself into Giant Eagle. Jesus is chopping for some grapes maybe to make some wine. Who knows? And he says, oh, be healed. The man no longer needs his wheelchair, picks it up, goes to walk back out to his van to put it in, and it just happens to be that a parking enforcement officer is going by, sees an able-bodied man carrying a wheelchair, and cites him for being illegally handicapped parked. That's the religious equivalent of this. But if we'll just take a moment to think through, why is this so absurd? Why would these God-fearing, Bible-reading people have such a terrible, at least in our view, response to the miracle that just happened in front of them. See, here's what it comes down to. It comes down to authority. For these men, the words of this book were the ultimate authority in their lives. Whatever the Bible said, particularly in this case, when it came to the Sabbath, was what goes. Now, on one hand, I think this is kind of admirable, right? As a pastor in the 21st century, it would be a lot easier sometimes to do ministry if people just held this view of Scripture, that it was God's Word, that God had authored it, that He had inspired human beings to write the the books of poetry and and the prophecies and, and the histories and the books of wisdom that are contained in this book. In one sense, it would be easier just to do that if if people had that view. But what John is showing us is that sometimes our view on what the ultimate authority is can make us miss the miracle of Jesus. Now, you would probably say, well, you know, I would never miss the miracle of Jesus because I held Scripture as the ultimate authority, but but in our culture, don't you think that there's sometimes an, an authority that we turn to that can, that can make us miss the miracle of Jesus sometimes? In fact, let me push a little bit on you. I pushed on myself this week. You know, if someone came to you and said, this miraculous thing happened, what would your first response be? I, I know what mine can be sometimes. I'm sure there's a scientific explanation for that. If someone called you and they had a really bad cancer diagnosis and they said, I went to the doctor and I've been healed. It's gone. 
what would you first think? Maybe something like, oh, I hope they're not giving them false hope. Or maybe it was misdiagnosed in the first place. Or I'm sure the medicine just worked. And what Jesus is pushing on in their case is how they view the ultimate authority in their lives. And I think what Jesus sometimes pushes on in our lives is, what are we viewing as the ultimate authority? In the case of the Jewish leaders, their view of Scripture was preventing them from seeing who Jesus was. Sometimes in our culture, our view of science can prevent us from seeing who Jesus is. And what we have to realize is that if our view of Scripture or if our view of science takes away from our view of Jesus, then it's not our view of Jesus that needs to be adjusted, but maybe it's our view of science. Anyhow, John tells us why he tells us the story. He continues on and said, look, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In other words, Jesus on a regular basis was doing things like that, not just to prove that he was God, but also to kind of push on them, to push on their view of what Scripture was compared to who Jesus is. And it was irritating to the religious leaders. They didn't want to change. In fact, they were pretty set in their view. They said, we have Scripture, Jesus. God authored it. He authorized it. He autographed it. And anything that you do that's contrary to what Scripture says, well, it has to prove that you're wrong. And so Jesus often got into debates with them, and John continues on in John chapter 5. He says, in the course of one of these debates, let me tell you what happened. Jesus was talking to them, and he said, and the Father who sent me has testified concerning me. In other words, in other words, they're saying, hey, this scripture is God's testimony. And Jesus is saying is that God, the one that you so highly value, and the one that Jesus so highly valued or esteemed, that same God is the one that testified concerning him. And then he quotes three different places in Scripture that they would have known what he was talking about. And first he says, you have never heard his voice. Moses heard God's voice, but you didn't. Nor have you seen his form. Jacob, your father, he saw God's form, but you haven't. Nor does his word dwell in you. David, David said he hid God's word in his heart, but you have not hidden his word in your heart, for you do not believe the one he sent. In other words, Jesus is making the point that if you do not believe in Jesus, well, then you betray the fact that you just don't understand Scripture. And I can just imagine the Jewish religious leaders hearing Jesus saying this. Their blood pressure starts to rise. Their necks get red. Their faces are flushed. And they're saying, it sounds like you're saying that if we don't believe you, then we can't believe Scripture. So if that's what you're saying, why don't you just come out and say it, Jesus? And so in verse 39, Jesus comes out and says it. And he says something that would have been as offensive to them as if I called you an un-American person. It, it, it would have rattled their world. And in his answer, he gives them the answer to their question and the answer to our question, what is the Bible? Look what Jesus says in John 5, 39. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, this wouldn't have bothered them. 
they would have said, absolutely. In fact, the people that he is speaking to know Scripture way better than really any of us in this room. They had devoted their entire lives to studying Scripture because they thought that in them they would have eternal life. In fact, by this point in the first century, rabbinic tradition had said that studying Scripture and getting as much Scripture as possible into your life was the path to God. If you know history at all, you might know that in AD 70, the Roman army came to Jerusalem and they captured the city and they destroyed everything, including the temple. And so the people of of Jerusalem and the Jewish people were no longer able to sacrifice. Have you ever wondered what happened to the sacrificial system after AD 70? Well, Jesus was pointing to the tradition that was already in place there. What happened after AD 70 was that the Jewish leaders just began to teach that scripture study was the replacement for sacrifice. And the idea was that the way to be right with God is to get as much scripture into your life as possible and to obey it. Now you might be saying, well, isn't that what Christians think too? That the way to eternal life and the way to be right with God is through studying scripture and applying it to your life. And I think that Jesus would say, no. Not at least if you're going to view scripture the way I view scripture. Because Jesus continues, these scriptures, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. In other words, Jesus is saying that the scriptures aren't the end. The scriptures are the means to the end. And if we want to know what the Bible is and what the Scripture is, and you have to understand that the whole point of Scripture is to testify about Jesus. And if you don't read the Scripture and it leads you into a relationship with Jesus, then you're not understanding them because you have to come to Him, to me, to have life. In fact, today, if we're going to answer the Bible in one statement, in one statement, we're going to answer it this, what is the Bible? The Bible is God's Word, in God's own words, about the Word. The Bible is God's Word, in God's own words, about the Word. Now let me explain this as we continue on. See, the Bible expresses God's heart. It's His Word. Remember what the heart is? The heart is the center of a person's attention, their affection, and their action. And in the Bible, God gives us his heart. He gives us his word. These are God's thoughts, his feelings, and his actions. But we have to realize this, that the Bible is not all of his word, but it is all his word, and it is all his word we need. Now, don't panic when you look at this first statement. Let me explain what this means. The Bible is not all that there is to know about God. God is so much more than just what he revealed in his word. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, if you want to look it up later, says that no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And what that means is there are things about God that are far beyond what he has revealed to us in his word. Theologian J.I. Packer, he put it this way in one of his books. He wrote that God does not profess to answer all the questions that we, in our boundless curiosity, would like to ask about Scripture. He merely tells us as much as he sees we need to know as a basis for our life of faith. What that means is this, is that there's more about God than we will ever know. In fact, what kind of God would he be if you or I could figure him out and know everything about him? 
But the reality is, though, that in his word, in this book, everything in there is his word. There is nothing in here that is not truth about God. And furthermore, it's all that we need. There's nothing missing. It's not 99% this book plus something else you need to know that you need to find somewhere else. In this book, he gives us everything about him that we need to know. Furthermore, this book is in God's own words. What that means is that the words of the Bible are the words as God would have them to be. Now, God inspired human beings to write the words that were here, and he used their personalities. In fact, we could say it this way. Although the writings reflect the human author's personality, language, style, and experience, the words were written as God breathed them. God gave these words to the human beings that wrote them. It's not like Peter is writing one day, and most of what he said was from God, but Peter threw a few Peterisms in there, and then, and then okay, well, God's like, I just don't feel like pushing back, Peter. I've already given you a hard enough time about a num- number of things. We'll just leave that in there. Everything in this book is God's words. Now, when you study Scripture and, and, and you start to look about how the Bible was formulated, you're going to hear this, this thought. Well, sure, the original manuscripts or the original writings, those were God's word, but those originals are lost. And the writings we have today in Scripture, we really don't know if they're anything like the originals because they've been polluted through copying errors and mistranslations and edits. But I want you to know that's actually not true. After the originals were written, people who devoted their entire lives to copying things accurately spent time copying God's word. They knew how many words were to be in each line, where each word went on each page, and the number of words were on each page. And if there was ever a mistake, they threw away the whole copying and started over. They were as careful about copying the original manuscripts as engineers are about building bridges and making sure that they don't collapse. In fact, one of the things about the New Testament that really lends to its credibility is that there's over 5,000 copies of the manuscripts of the New Testament alone. Which means that people are able to, experts are able to go and they're able to with near 100% certainty know every single word that was written by the New Testament authors. And anywhere there's a discrepancy, a good study Bible will point that out and say one manuscript says this and one manuscript says that. But anywhere there's even the smallest discrepancy, it's known, and it really doesn't have an impact on the basis of our faith. All of Scripture is in God's own words, but more importantly, it's not only in God's words, it's about the Word. If you're here today and you you struggle to say, "How how do I know that I can trust this book? I'm just not sure that I'm ready to do that. One of the questions I want to push back on you and ask is, what would it take for you to truly trust What would it take for you to truly trust that this is God's truth for your life? Maybe you would answer and say, well, if God himself showed up and told me. Well, I don't know if it'll convince you, but hopefully it'll point you in the right direction that did you know that God himself showed up and proved it is the exact premise that the Bible claims about itself. In fact, in the same book that we've been studying today in John, That author writes this. He says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
In other words, what he says is that Jesus, which the word is another title for Jesus, took on human flesh and lived among human beings. He said, hey, here I am. But because we are dense, or at least I can be dense, I'll only speak for myself, not only did he come in human flesh, but he actually took the name, the word, so we couldn't miss it. If you know anything that's going on with the Washington, D.C. NFL team, you'll know that right now their name is no longer the Redskins. It's just the football team. It's not creative, but it's clear. And this is kind of the Bible version of that. Jesus took on the most obvious name of what he was so that we couldn't miss it. Jesus is the embodiment of God's word, spiritually and physically. The Bible is God's word in God's own words about the word. And what this means then is that our faith, it doesn't hinge on a, on a book, it hinges on a person. At the center of our faith is a person, not a book. Let me explain what this means. It means that this book points to Jesus. It does not replace Jesus. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, his death, and his resurrection on the cross, and what that means for our lives because of his grace and forgiveness. We were at some friend's house a few weeks ago, and we were sitting on their back porch, and it was nighttime, and it was one of those nights where there was like a full moon. And we're looking at the moon, and it's shining so brightly. It was one of those full moons that you could see everything in the backyard, almost like it was daytime. And we got to talking about the moon. And maybe you learned about this in science class, but did you know that the moon actually doesn't have any light of its own at all? It reflects the sun's light. As the sun is on the other side of the earth, the light of the sun bounces off the moon, reflects and gives light to our earth. But if you didn't know better, it would sure seem like the moon was shining its own light. And sometimes when we study Scripture, we can make it seem like the Scripture is the light in and of itself. But Scripture is really just like the moon. It gives off light, but it reflects the light of Jesus. That's where the illumination comes from. Scripture points us to Jesus. In fact, A.W. Tozer said it like this one time. He says, the purpose of the Bible is not to replace God. The purpose of the Bible is to lead us to God. The Bible is never an end in itself. The Bible is God's word, in God's own words, about the word. That's why Jesus says that these very scriptures testify to me. Now, you might be sitting here today and thinking, well, the, this scriptures for Jesus was actually the Old Testament. So what about the New Testament? What about the 27 books that come after Jesus lived and died and went back into heaven? Well, after Jesus lived, his followers began to follow in the same tradition that those writers before them did. They began to write about what happened. In fact, John, and I think we're going to need to skip a slide here. We're going to go to John chapter 20. John, the same person who wrote John 5 that we we're studying today, he said, but these are written. In other words, all of these stories and all of these accounts of Jesus are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life 
in his name. In other words, the writings that come after Jesus, the New Testament, have the same purpose. They all point to Jesus. Let me wrap it up today with uh, an example. I brought with me today, I'm not proposing, so don't get too excited. I've already done that before. I brought my wife's engagement ring. A number of years ago in 2007, I took my wife for a walk on the beach. I got down on one knee. I put out the ring. And in a very roundabout way, she said yes. And that's a story for another sermon. I'll have to tell you another day. <laughs> and I gave her this ring. And for the next year, anytime she put this ring on her finger, which was all the time, and she went like that and showed it off, it was a symbol. It was, it was something that pointed to something that was to come. Anybody who saw just the engagement ring on her finger knew that in her future was a wedding day, that she was going to start a relationship, a different kind of relationship that she had never had before. And in a way, the Old Testament, the first 39 books of Scripture, all the books that take place before Jesus comes, they, they are like an engagement ring. They point to the time when Jesus the promise w- would come. On the other side of my wife's engagement ring is a wedding band. I gave her this wedding band on her wedding day. That was 13 years ago, and a lot has happened since then. Some things have stayed the same. A lot has changed. But every day since then, she has worn this on her finger. And it's been a reminder. It pointed back to that wedding. That moment when she promised herself to me and I promised myself to her. It it points back to what happened, what took place. And in a lot of ways, the New Testament is like the wedding band. It points back to when Jesus came, the promised one from the Old Testament, what he did and what he means for our lives. Now, if you could come close, you would be able to see that her wedding bands are sort of metal or soldered together. I'd like to say there's some symbolic meaning for that in our relationship, but really what happened was the fellow who dips her rings for us as a friend, and he said, why don't you put those things, or let me solder those together so they don't slip around so much. But I was looking at him, and I was thinking, you know what? It's kind of how the New Testament and the Old Testament work together. See, just as her wedding bands can't come apart anymore, they're bound together, you can't really understand the New Testament unless you go back into the Old Testament and understand that God all along from the beginning of time was pointing to Jesus. And you can't really understand the Old Testament unless you go to the New Testament and you say everything that was promised was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now here's the most important thing. These rings, though, they don't represent just an event. They certainly don't represent a piece of paper. They represent a relationship. And every morning when my wife puts these rings on, She is participating in that relationship and continuing it on. And every time you open up this book, you're continuing on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You're knowing him more fully. Because every word on every page, every sentence, every paragraph, every chapter, and every book points to Jesus, testifies to him. And you cannot know him without coming through his word to understand that he is the word 
It's all about him. As we wrap up today, we're going to show you a video. There's a couple in our church who about a year ago decided they wanted to know more about Jesus. So they committed to, for a year, reading through the Bible. And in this video, they're going to tell you the story of the difference that God made in their lives through his word. Check it out. We started reading through the Bible in July of last year. My daughter, Julia, started to do the um, read the Bible in a year with the YouVersion Bible app. Said how wonderful it was, how life-changing it was. It just prompted us to start. Um, we use the YouVersion Bible app, and it has, has been wonderful. I uh, started going back to church in, in uh, my 30s. And that's whenever I started reading the Bible. I should have never stopped reading it whenever I did, that's for sure. I had read a lot of the Bible here and there, but never in its entirety, and certainly not a lot of the Old Testament. So we usually do it on our own. You know, maybe he'll do lunch break or the same with me. And um, But then later in the evening, we, we usually meet up. Now, this does not happen every day, but... We will meet up at least, I don't know, three times a week and really, oh, at, least, yeah. at least three or four, mm -hmm. and really talk about the scriptures for that day. I mean, it's absolutely made us stronger, but it's because I have learned to admire just how much he loves God, how much he loves the word. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely made our marriage stronger. Before I ever read the Bible, especially growing up, I mean, it was just, to me, this overwhelming, huge book with the old English that I could never get past. But going from being completely overwhelmed by it to digging in, it's, it's changed my perspective on my purpose in life. Like, I'm not just going out to do my job and pay my bills. I'm here to spread the word of Jesus Christ, and I'm here to, to glorify him in everything that I do. Well, if somebody said that they didn't think reading the Bible was for them, I mean, if they're a Christian, number one, it absolutely is. But to get over that hill of being overwhelmed or intimidated by it, get the YouVersion Bible app on your phone. They have so many different versions in there. Go to the NIV to get the plain English and just dig in a little bit. When you can understand it, it breaks down that barrier and it just, it's just a great place to start, I think. If you read it and start reading it, uh, you're not gonna regret it. Uh, you're not gonna get it all at once or the first time through it, but if you keep doing it, you, you learn more and more all the time. If, if you pray and ask God to help you understand it and learn it and show you the truth, He will. In this last year especially, with everything we've gone through, not knowing what to believe in the news. The only truth that we will ever find is in that Bible, is the Bible, is God's Word. It, it really teaches you to trust in Him more. Uh, you, you, you have to rely on Him and you, you put your trust in Him. I can't say I have a favorite, but I have to say that First and Second Samuel were, my, I guess, maybe my favorite. I think they should be made in the movies. I mean, David is just amazing. I, he, did I cry at the end of 2 Samuel? I think I cried when it was over. Anything that has to do with Jesus coming back for us, I love those verses and basically how he's never going to leave us or forsake us. I love those verses. So my challenge to you today is what about you? 
are you willing to commit to reading this book? If you want to take some next steps, let me tell you what I would suggest you do. First, come back next week. Pastor Keith is going to bring a message. Today was, what is the Bible? There's a little bit more uh, idea or philosophical. But next week, Pastor Keith is going to talk about some practical things that you can do in your life to get better at reading the Word and teach on how to do it. The second thing is, if you have some questions about the Bible that just aren't answered, I want to encourage you, grab uh, one of those bulletin inserts, pick up a resource, spend some time, learn a little bit more about what all took place to bring this book into being. But most importantly, the third thing is, read it. In fact, as you leave on the tables, you'll see some Bible reading plans. There's just one Bible reading plan. You can go on the YouVersion Bible app. There are a number of different resources you can find on the internet. We've just given you one that will walk you through reading Scripture, the entire Bible, in one year. And here's the good news. That plan starts on August 1st. So if you start reading this week, you can be ahead. I've been reading a biography of a man named Martin Luther. He actually lived right around the same time as William Tyndale. And one of the quotes that really caught my attention was what Martin Luther said about Scripture. He said, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. The Bible has feet. It runs after me. The Bible has hands. It lays a hold of me. And what you will see if you actually engage in this book so that God's word is alive. And through this word, he will bring you into a life-giving relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you, and then we'll see you next week. God, we come before you. Father, I pray that you will take some of the truth about your word and plant it in our lives, but more than anything, God, I pray that you'll birth a passion within your people to read your word, but not just to read it and learn it, Father, but to live it. And even more than living it, God, let us not be people who just do exactly what the Bible says, but God, let us be people who engage in a life-giving, eternal relationship with Jesus that we are led into through understanding you and your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you all next Sunday.